The holiness of God is one way of talking about his otherness, his difference from us, his being in a class by himself, his being absolutely unique. Hannah put it like this in 1 Samuel 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. His holiness is transcendent, pure, absolute uniqueness. There is none like the Lord in his holiness. So there's an infinite difference between us and him, which means that when we see his holiness most clearly, we feel not only unworthy the way Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, where it says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. So not not only is this infinite difference between him in his holiness and us, not only does it have the effect of producing a sense of unworthiness so that we cry out, woe is me, but it also means that we meet strange things in the presence of the holiness of God. Things that at first don't make any sense to us. The the clearer you see the holiness of God revealed in the Bible, the more strange things about life and about your heart and about Him start to come into focus. Inexplicable things, things that don't seem to fit in your life or in the world. We think we have the gospel a little bit figured out. And then on our way there, we think we have our lives brought into a little bit of accord with the gospel. And suddenly, we see in the presence of his holiness some implication that baffles us, baffles us about ourselves baffles us about him and about what he calls us to. They're strange. And many people at this point, and I'm introducing this this way to try to run this off at the pass so that it doesn't happen to you. Some people at this point in their walk with God bail on the Christian life. They they leave. They see something in the Bible, something strange, something other, something different, something that doesn't fit with where they were heading in their Christian maturing, maturing, and and it so discombobulates them that they're gone. They They won't listen. They won't pause and say, okay, God, this baffles me, but I'm yours, the book is yours, the problem must be here, not there, so have at me, 
Do whatever you need to do to me. I'm not leaving, but I don't get this. It's inevitable, it seems to me, that as a creature, especially a sinful creature, meets a holy God, that that's going to happen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I think in the section I'm going to read now, this happens for a lot of people. As you get close to the holiness of God in 1 Peter 1, things start to come into focus that don't fit either our mental categories or our emotional capacities. We're expected to do or to feel or to think things that we, at the moment, don't feel like we can. And yet, it seems to be a an implication of the holiness of God. And so my prayer is that as we work our way through this passage, if that starts to happen to you, if that emotional tension builds, that you will patiently call upon the Lord to work on you and do whatever needs to be done so that whatever's there and is true finds a home in you, finds an echo in your heart. I'm thinking of verses 13 to 21 in the first chapter of the first epistle of Peter, and I'll read those verses to you. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your mind for act, your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So there were passions rooted in ignorance producing a conformal behavior, a behavior that conforms. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, and then he quotes Leviticus 11, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, because he had just referred to them in verse 14 as obedient children, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has made, was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. That's the word of the Lord. 
There are three imperatives in that paragraph. There are 19 verbs. Three of them are imperatives. The rest are participles, indicatives, and one infinitive, which means there are three commands. Everything else in this text is argument. Everything else is explanation. Let me mention each of those three commands. Verse 13, second half of the verse. Set your hope fully. Literally, hope. The verb hope fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's a command that you feel strong hope tonight. That when Jesus comes again, he'll be bearing grace. It will be well with you. An all-satisfying, healing, forgiving, loving, enfolding grace is being brought to you at the revelation of King Jesus at the end of the age. Hope fully that that's the way you're going to meet him, not as condemning punishment. Grace is going to be brought to you at the coming of the Lord, at the appearing of the Lord. Hope fully in that. Hope deeply and strongly in that. That's the first commandment in this text. Not mildly, fully. Great grace is coming. Set your hope on it. That's a command. Second, the end of verse 15. I'll read all of 14 and 15 to see it in the flow. As obedient children, now this is a participle, even though it sounds like a command in in English, do not be conformed. Not being conformed, as obedient children, not being conformed, to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. The word be or become is an imperative. So the second commandment here is become holy. Be holy in all your conduct. Your conduct should have holiness about it. Everything you do should smell like God's holiness. So command number one, hope fully in grace coming to you. Command number two, be holy in all your conduct. Number three, verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. And the verb conduct yourselves, built on that same noun, conduct, earlier, be holy in all your conduct, and now here, conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So verse 15, in all your conduct be holy. Verse 17, in all your conduct, fear. Conduct yourselves in fear. 
Since your father judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves in fear. So we have three commandments. Live in hope. Live in holiness. Live in fear. That's strange. Live in fear. In all you do, And the closer you get, the stranger it gets. This is what I mean when I said the clearer you see God's holiness and its implications for your life, the more you're often thrown off balance by what the Bible expects from you. Just the moment you think you have hoping figured out, you're told to live in fear. Very strange. Live in holiness, and the way to do this is to live in hope and to live in fear. Let's be sure that you see that this holiness here that you are to have in all your conduct is like God's holiness. Let's look at verses 15 and 16 up close. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So it appears then that the holiness of God is both the pattern and the ground of our holiness. Notice that word for there in verse 16. From Leviticus 11, you shall be holy for I am holy. The ground, the basis of my pursuit of holiness is God's holiness. So clearly, my holiness, my way of living is to be somehow very closely connected to God's holiness. And his holiness is the pattern. Notice the word as at the beginning of verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you be holy. So it's the basis, because he's holy, be holy. And it's the pattern, as he's holy, be holy. And what's so strange is, I started by saying, God's holiness is his inimitability. It's... He's separate, he's other, he's one of a kind, unique, sui generis, classed by himself, infinitely high. You can't even begin to get close to God that way. Now be holy, for he is holy and as he is holy. We should expect to find some strange things here. If you're called to be what only God can be, you should expect this might do some turning upside down of my emotions and my categories of thought, which is why I think we have something as jarring as the way there is to live in hope and to live in fear. As strange as that is, it's appropriate that it be strange. He's God. 
And we are going to teach all of this to children. <laughs> That's why I love children desiring God. They don't shy away from anything. They think that I've inspired them. It's really the other way around. I get inspired as children desiring God tackle the seemingly impossible task of putting the most glorious things in the world in ways that children can understand. That's inspiring. So this is what we're going to teach children. I want the next generation from the cradle on to taste what it is to hope fully in the grace that is coming to this world. I want them to obey verse 13b. Set your hope fully, little one, on the grace that is being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he stands forth out of heaven, splitting the sky and showing up here to settle all accounts and make a new heaven and a new earth. I want you, little one, hope fully in that, as fully as your little heart can hope, hope in that. Yes, I do. I can hide that from you. I can try to get you hopefully in anything less than that. We want them to grow up in unshakable, ultimate optimism. Unshakable, ultimate optimism. No mopers. They are coming into a world that is flaunting its evil more openly than America has been accustomed to for a few hundred years. What we see around us that they will be growing up in is not a new world. It's just new for America. It's not the least new, right? The first century was way ahead of us in lechery. It's just new for us. We, we're just kind of accustomed to having hegemony, hegemony of, of kind of a Protestant white America because the Puritans started this whole thing, right? Well, that's going away. It's already way gone away in continental Europe, Britain, and it was gone away 2,000 years ago when the gospel made stunning headway in its midst. Therefore, I have zero conviction in pessimism. Who knows? Who knows what the sovereign God may be up to through our children for this America? Our children will have to deal, it looks like, with manifestations of sinfulness that were more restrained in past decades, 
And therefore, we want to raise them not with a flimsy, immediate optimism, which is utterly naive, but rather whose hopes are sunk down deep in grace so that they have ultimate, unshakable optimism at the hope that is coming to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ and who knows what measures of revival may be wrought through them on this planet. So, yes, command number one, we're going to teach to our children. Let them taste, help them taste what it is to hope fully in the grace that is coming. And we want our children to taste the holy fear of God, their Father and their Judge. We want them to obey, verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear, little ones, throughout the time of your exile from heaven. I don't want to be a part of raising fragile children, emotionally fragile children. If they are fragile, we're going to love them anyway. But that's not our goal. I don't want to set my target on raising emotionally fragile children who can only be told to hope because if they're told to fear, they collapse. Baffled and scared of that command. We don't want to raise children who have no built-in categories for holy fear alongside holy hope. You don't want to raise kids like that. You want to raise children who have been so immersed in the holy atmosphere of the holy God and his holy Bible that they have built-in categories of mind and built-in capacities of emotion that enable them to say, holy fear and holy hope are my life. Yes, that's what we're after. Children like that. We don't want to raise them in such a way that their hope vanishes when they're told to fear. But rather, their hope deepens and strengthens when they are told to have holy fear in their holy God. It's strange. It's paradoxical. You may not have grown up with that kind of help, and therefore you now are sitting there feeling, well, I sure help you help, hope you help me because I'm not in a position to help them because that's not where I am. And that's exactly what I expected to be the case because very few of us have had the privilege of living in an atmosphere of intense awareness of God's holiness such that the strangeness of it has started to feel a little bit 
normal. And third, I want these children to taste the holiness of God. I want them to taste what it is to hope fully. I want them to taste what it is to have a holy fear of God. And I want them now to taste the holiness of God planted in their own soul, born of the Holy Spirit, awakening a holy new nature in the new birth so that they become children of the Holy Father. I want them to obey now, verses 15 and 16. As he who called you is holy, you now, little ones, be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you little ones should be holy, for God is holy. I am holy. We want strange, wonderful, hopeful, fearful, courageous, strong, joyful, wise young people who are shaped by the glorious otherness and strangeness of God in their lives so that they bear in their own bodies a winsome paradox. And other children can't explain them. And adults can't explain them because they can't explain for themselves what it is to have a holy fear and a holy hope in the same soul at the same time, which is what this text is asking us to do. So, since our task is to teach children all of those things, we are called to immerse ourselves in our Bibles, in the holy word of God. We are called, you and I are called, because we must help them, we're called to linger long over strange and wonderful things that we find in the Bible with a prayerful expectation, God is going to free me from my former ignorance. Got to free me. It set me free from whatever it is in me that I grew up with that's making this look impossible, emotionally impossible. He's going to free me. He's going to shape me and conform me and build into my mind new categories of thought and new capacities of emotion in my soul so this won't seem so weird and so contradictory and paradoxical and impossible. You you pray over the word hour after hour, meditating and lingering long over the word in the hope that wonderful things and strange things will happen in your heart so that you can walk into a class of third graders or first graders and they will smell the holiness of God on you. And then you will be able to find words for their good. This chapter, what I want to do for the rest of our time is tackle uh, especially living in hope and living in fear with a view to living in holiness. Because I think the, the hope and the fear are the roots of the holiness that we're called to live out. So you've got to be a hope-filled person and you have to have a holy fear and those two things are feeding in to create this being called holy in all your conduct. So let's look at the hope piece and the fear piece 
and see if God uses these words to create in you categories that are coherent and emotional capacities that don't make you feel like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde oscillating between hope and fear. The first chapter of 1 Peter is overwhelmingly a chapter of hope. It is overwhelmingly a chapter of hope. So relax if you feel like, I, kind of, I, can't, I need more help with the hope piece. I tend to be not a hopeful person. Please help me with hope. And Peter must be like you because you, you look at this chapter, it is overwhelmingly intended to give you hope. Verse 3, second half of the verse. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's the whole point of the new birth, evidently. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. What's the point of of language like that? It's never going to spoil on you. It's up there in heaven, never go away. It is gloriously ready for you. It will never be lost. It will never disappoint you. Verse 5, and not only is it being kept for you, you're being kept for it who by God's power are being guarded for, through faith, for that salvation, ready to be revealed. So it's being kept for you. You're being kept for it. You were born again for that. This is all intended to make a full hoping people so that when he gets to verse 13 and he says, hope fully, it won't be a surprise. You'll already be doing it because of truths like this. Or verses 8, second half of the verse, and 9, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your your souls. In other words, this inexpressible joy that's present now in this world, this corrupt American world, our joy ought not to be destroyed in any sense by this world is because we are receiving the salvation of our souls and it will not fail. And then you get to verse 13, Hopefully, therefore, well, of course, look at what he has said, hopefully. Then verses 18 and 19, you were ransomed not with perishable things, which means your ransom will never fail you, right? (laughs) A perishable thing, you put it in the pantry, open it up to put it to work, and it's all rotten and no good anymore. But an imperishable ransom, it's always there ransoming. It's always there preserving. It's always there obtaining you as its goal. Not with perishable things like silver and gold. He chooses the best thing he can think of to call perishable. But with the precious blood of Christ. Solid hope. That's the point of those words. Or verse 21. God raised Jesus from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope would be in God. Or verse 23, you have been born again through the living and abiding word. What's the point of saying you've been born again through abiding word, lasting word, word that can't ever be destroyed? So we're born again unto a living hope. Verse 3, that's the way the chapter begins and the chapter ends. We're born again through the word that lasts. Last will never let you down. You're born of this, you're sustained by this, and it is abiding, it's living. So would you agree with me 
that the point of this chapter is hopeful. So don't let anything I say dim your perception of the grounds of hope that are all over this chapter. This chapter means for you to be a person of indomitable, strong, unfailing, final optimism and current hope that God is always there saving you, caring for you, providing for you, is going to get you where you want to go in the end. It is unshakable hope in this chapter. So when you get to verse 13, and he gives you these participles, preparing your minds for action. Literally, the old uh, image of girding up the loins, that is, so everybody had long clothing, so you reach down and you, and you grab your skirt, men or women, men here, let's say, and you pull it up between your legs, and now you've turned your skirt into shorts. They're kind of cool. And you put a belt around to hold it up, and now you can run. You can't run until you do that. And he says, do that to your brain. That's the point. Do that to your brain. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, you got a skirt hanging on your brain. It's, it's making you just dumb. It's making you sit in front of the television and just not think. You can't move it. Pull it up. Put a belt around. Now your brain is alive. It's ready to move. And then he just supplements it by saying, and, and be sober. What's the opposite of sober? Drunk. What do drunk brains do? They fall down. They don't know what's going on. They don't remember. They do stupid things. Don't let your brain go that way. Let your brain serve your hope. Girding up the loins of your mind, being sober, hope. Prepare your minds for action, be sober, so that you can hope, which means you're supposed to take your brain, teachers of children, take your brain and set it on all these reasons in chapter one for hope. And then you walk into your class, you got eight reasons for hope this morning. And you're going to help these kids know what it is to hope fully in the grace that is coming to them because hope is all over this chapter. And you have spent four hours on Saturday afternoon girding up the loins of your minds so that you're not drunk as you stare at the Bible and see all hazy things, and instead you see what's really there, and it's blowing you away because you're a caffeinated brain. <laughs> so if, if, if you have to have caffeine to wake up or to pull up the loins, I think the Lord's okay. I think the drugs, I think the drugs that the Lord is opposed to is the one that make you see weird things. <laughs> caffeine is supposed to help you stop seeing weird things and start seeing what's really there. I'd have to have another sermon to defend that, but <laughs> I want to be a legalist here about caffeine. I right? just want to be hard on marijuana <laughs> or LSD or anything else that puts you out of touch with God's glorious reality. Then in verses 14 and 15, Peter shows how God makes hope fuel holiness. So you've used your brain to look at all the reasons to hope. Now, how, how, does he, how does he explain that a person moves into hope for the sake of holiness? And I see five very brief steps here. I'll give them to you one at a time. Number one, God, God's call on your life. Verse 15, as the one, as the holy one who called you, 
That's virtually the same as the new birth back in chapter 3, right? God's effective, effectual call bringing you to himself and his new birth are the same thing. So when he said to Lazarus, I'm calling you, come out, dead Lazarus, he caused him to be born, as it were, and he called him. He created life in you. That's the way you got saved. So the root of how you get hope begins with God's call on your life. Number two, when you are called, you become a child of God. Verse 14, as obedient children. So now you are born into a new family. You're born, right? Born alive from the spiritual deadness that you had, and now you're alive in the family. What could be more hope-filled than to be in the family of God? I just can't imagine anything more hopeful than to walk around and say, you know who my dad is? My dad is God. That's hopeful. You don't, you don't mess with God's children. Everything works together for good for God's children. So nothing is more hopeful than to be in the family of God. So that's number, number two. Three, these children now who have been brought into the family of God through new birth overcome the blindness of ignorance and see reality for what it really is. Verse 14. Do not be conformed to your former desires or lusts. It's just a neutral word, desires. Your former desires, which were yours in ignorance. So now you, you born again, called in the family of God children, see things truly now. Once upon a time you had desires that were bad desires because they were based on ignorance of what is truly valuable. And now your eyes have been opened by the new birth and you see Jesus differently and heaven differently and holiness differently and the Bible differently and church differently and ministry and service and the point of the world differently and all new desires start to percol, per, what's the word, percolate up. So I'm, I've jumped to number four. The first one, the number three was you, you overcome that ignorance through the new birth, and now new desires happen. You had desires in ignorance, now you've got desires in knowledge and in truth, which leads finally, number five, to holy conduct. Verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. So here they are again. God's call or the new birth. Number two, Entrance into God's family, number two. Number three, replacing ignorance with knowledge, seeing things like they really are. Number four, new hope-filled desires. And fifth, a growing experience of holiness in all of life. So, the girding up of your mind in verse 13, the preparing of the mind for action is meant to help us Hope fully, prepare your minds for action. Verse 13, set your hope fully on grace. And the way the mind does it or the way the God uses the mind is that the ignorance that was in the mind, according to verse 14, is now replaced by truth or knowledge and that begets new desires and now those desires produce 
holiness of conduct. Unshakable hope, that is, confident desires in truth and beauty of Christ is the fuel of being holy. Holiness is not a willpower thing. Holiness, as you've just seen, I hope, is born of a new birth that creates new eyes, seeing new treasures, awakening new desires, yielding a new conduct called holiness. And that's the way we have to go at it with our kids. One of the hardest things about children's ministry or parenting is that we have to keep children from killing themselves by putting their hands in sockets and in burners and running out in the street, which means we're always saying, no, no, don't do that, no, 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 which means kids grow up as inveterate legalists, list keepers. That's all they remember. I remember saying to my mother when I was 13, do, 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 all over here is do, because she had just asked me to take out the garbage. Do, do, do. I, now, I was just stupid in saying that. I had the greatest mom in the world. But at that moment, that's what I felt. Because it's true. Parents have to say a lot of do's and don'ts, which means this thing that I just unpacked for you becomes massively important in order to help the children not grow up to think Christianity is just do's and don'ts, which is what so many people in the world think it is. And it's not what it is. It's a new birth. It's a miracle. It's seeing with new eyes. It's having new values. It's creating new desires. It's overcoming old ignorance. And it's freely out of that new heart of new desires, doing new things that you love to do without any legalistic constraint at all because you're new. Hope, that is, confident desires in the beauty of of Christ is the fuel of holiness, which brings us to the last question and makes it all the more crucial. What about fear? What about this fear that you said is so crucial in verse 17? Live in hope, live in holiness, live in holy fear. So let's go back to verse 17 and think for a few minutes about it. And pray that God would help us to feel it in such a way that nothing that I've said up to this point about hope would be undermined. If what I have said so far is undermined by what you feel about fear, then you're not feeling it properly. Verse 17, and if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, the time of your exile. So this is not like have, have, have fear every now and then. Through your exile on the planet, your home is heaven, exile here, through that fear. Now, notice, Peter will not let us slip away from both sides of the paradox here. He insists, doesn't he? Look at verse 17. He insists on calling God judge and father in one verse. He didn't leave one out. Okay, we're going to talk about judge now. 
No. He, he pushes Father right in there alongside Judge. But when you begin to feel yourself slipping towards presumption, like, my father's sitting behind the bench. No piece of cake at the judgment. My daddy is the judge. He's going to be cool with his kids. There's a word in this verse that says, watch out for that attitude. Do you see it? I asked my, my seminary guys today, and they saw it. It's the word impartially, right? He judges impartially according to each one's work. There are two different standards here. One for the judge's kids, low standard, and one for everybody else, high standard. That is ruled out by the word impartially. So that's intended to caution those of us who are starting to get a little bit presumptuous with having our dad behind the judge's bench, so there's really nothing to fear here. No, no. Impartially. The kids get no slack. There's a standard in this courtroom. And just about the time you might feel despairing reading this Verse, you notice he uses the word exile. During your exile, meaning this world is not your home. God is your father. Heaven is your home. You're going there. Be hopeful. So there are at least four ways that in this verse he's packing in the paradox. He won't, let you, he won't let you pick it apart. I like this part, but not that part. I want this. I'm the rugged type. I can handle impartiality. No, you need fatherhood. You really need fatherhood. I'm, I'm kind of tender and I'm soft. I like father. I don't want judge and I don't want impartial. Well, you've got judge and you've got impartial, but you also got exile because your home is in heaven. So take heart. He makes it even more strange because verses 18 to 21 are an argument for fear. Let me read it, see if you agree with me. Conduct yourselves with fear, end of verse 17 here. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then you got one of these participles. Knowing that you were now, whenever you have something like that, wouldn't you say he really means because you know, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an argument. It's a because clause. If you were to not use a participle but a regular verb, you'd say because you know. And that's right. That's what he's saying. So I'm going to translate it that way. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile because you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things but like silver and gold, but with precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That makes sense? Not really. <laughs> Are you, what? Live your lives in fear because he ransomed you with the blood of Jesus. <laughs> what? 
These are the kinds of things that you meet in the presence of the holiness and strangeness and otherness of God. Yes, that's what he's arguing. He is. Conduct yourselves with fear because Christ paid infinitely and permanently to free you from perishing. That's the argument. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile because you were ransomed by infinite price. Just to make it completely baffling, Verses 20 and 21 continue the argument and the word hope becomes explicit as the ground of fear. Christ, verse 20, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for your sake who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Therefore, fear. Live your life in fear during your exile. All of that means there really is a kind of holy fear of God, the judge, impartial, that does not destroy strong, full hope in God, but strengthens it and deepens it refines it, purifies it, stabilizes it, exists right beside it. And if you're not feeling that in your life, then join me in marinating your brain in this text for a year or two until God awakens emotional capacities for for both experiences, side by side, intertwined, full hope, holy fear, all day, through my exile. Um, give a few summary efforts to describe that that I hope will help. But before I do, uh, I shared this afternoon with the guys when we were talking about this ever table talk, uh, an illustration that I wasn't going to use, but I used it there, and, and it seemed to, they seemed to get quiet when I used it, so it seemed like, hmm, maybe, maybe I should use it here. Um, how, how is he reasoning when he says, conduct yourselves in fear because you've been ransomed at infinite cost? So here's the picture I have in my mind. This is one possible way to, to experience this. Suppose you're a dad who has a daughter. She's maybe 16, say, 17. She's been a, a, a problem recently, and you're worried about her. Hanging out with some people that you're concerned about, a little cool towards spiritual things that she used to care about more deeply, and uh, you love her like crazy. You lay down your life for it in a minute, and she gets kidnapped by some really ugly thugs, as far as you can tell. And they write you a note of demand for ransom. 
and you decide you're going to pay it, and you don't have it. So you sell your house and your car, you cash out your retirement program, you sell your wife's jewelry, your ring, some really beautiful heirlooms, and you take the money, and they've set it up so that you could put the money in a place where she could see it, you could see it, they could see it, and she'll walk out and get it. And when she walks out and get it and gives it to them, she can go free. And you take it out there and, and set it down. And then you go back to wait. And she walks out, picks it up, and as she walks back, she gives you the finger and walks away with her arm around her captor. That's what you should be afraid of. Right? Doing that. Con conduct your lives in fear because he paid everything for you. Don't do anything that would keep scorn upon that life, that sacrifice, that love. Don't hope in money. Don't hope in sin of any kind. Hope fully in him, in it. Fear not hoping in God. That's one way they fit together. Tremble at the prospect of heaping insults upon the blood of Jesus by acting as though it were not of infinite value. Fear that. Now, let me try to say it a couple of other ways. What we saw about the how hope originates back in verses 14 to 15 with the, the new birth and the family of God and the changed desires and the overcoming ignorance and so on. What we saw back there uh, inclines me to believe that there's a distinction between an unholy fear that he's asking for and, a, I mean, a holy fear that he's asking for and an unholy fear. And I think it might help you if I state what I think is the difference between um, a, an unholy fear that would lame you and would be no sign of godliness or holiness and a holy fear. So here are a few distinctions. Unholy fear runs away from the judgment on sin and looks for safety in all kinds of excuses and moral and religious camouflage. That's unholy, unregenerate fear of God that hears that he's a judge, that he judges people impartially according to their work and runs away from the judge, creates all kinds of excuses why he can't possibly judge me because I'm no worse than anybody else and finds all kinds of religious and moral camouflage that we lay over our lives as much as we can to keep anybody from thinking we might fall prey to that judgment. That is an unholy fear. Whereas a holy fear runs away from the sin itself and looks for safety in pardoning and empowering grace of God. So the one, you might say, fears the mere consequence of sin and the other fears sin 
and its consequence, but runs from sin, hates sin, sees sin as ugly, is terrified at the prospect of embracing and loving and kissing the lizard of sin on the shoulder to show that our Jesus is not worth it. That's what we're really afraid of. I'm really afraid of ending badly as a 67-year-old man. The thought of ending badly is scary to me. And the function of the fear is not to paralyze me, but to send me running to the one who can keep me, now unto him who can keep me from falling, and to present me blameless before the throne of his glory. To him be glory. But oh, I'll tell you, the function of the fear of sinning my way into the grave and bringing reproach upon my king is huge. Or... Another definition, unholy fear. Unholy fear runs away from the one who judges those who don't hope fully in God. I'm going to say this carefully now. Unholy fear runs away from the one who judges those who don't hope fully in God. Whereas holy fear runs away from not hoping in God into the arms of the judge who is their father. Running away from the judge who judges those who don't hope fully in God, that's unholy fear. Holy fear runs away from not hoping fully in God. And where does he run? Right into the arms of the judge who happens to be, he knows, his father who gave his son that we might be saved. One more way to distinguish them. Unholy fear ignores the preciousness of the ransom and trembles at the judgment of God. Holy fear cherishes the ransom and trembles at the prospect of insulting the goodness of the one who paid for. Let me close with a picture for eight-year-olds. You're supposed to take everything I've said and give it to kids. Yes, you are. may have to wait a year to do it, but yes, you are, and yes, you can. It can be done. In my second year, I think it was, it may have been the first, I was invited. I had my oldest son, who's now 40, was eight. Is that right? Does, that, does the math work there? Roughly. 32, 33. Uh, he's seven or eight. And we went to the house of Dick Teagan. Probably three people in this room know who that was. And he had a dog that was so big, my son, the eight-year-old, was looking him eye to eye. As, as the door opened, Carson never seen a dog that big. It's kind of breathtaking for a kid. Took my breath away. <laughs> oh, the big... Jaws, is he safe? <laughs> and Dick said, friendliest dog you'll ever meet, not a problem. Okay. And I said to Carson, I forgot I left something in the car. I said to Carson, would you run get me in the car just across the yard there? I forgot it. And he takes off like an obedient child running. And this dog comes out of the house and lopes up behind him with a low growl. And he's not sure whether to cry or not, if this is safe. And Dick hollers out, oh, Karsten, 
maybe better just walk. He doesn't like it when people run away from him. And I thought, that's going into next Sunday sermon <laughs> on the fear of God. And I'll tell you, I mean, really, just as seriously as I know how to say it, that picture has fed my soul many times. God does not like to be run away from. He gets mad, really mad. And if you stay running away from him, he's ultimately mad and forever mad. He would just slow down and turn. He really is a big, friendly dog. <laughs> no insult. I like dogs better than cats anyway. <laughs> you, this will play with eight-year-olds. Yes, it will. They will get this. They will. And you can think, because of your experience, a lot of other things that make things clear for little ones who need help, just like you need help, with what it is to fear the living God and hope perfectly in him. You slow down, this dog walks beside you, nobody's messing with you. You put your arm up around that dog like this, my dog. I have protection. I have a friend. Or elevate it 10 million times. I have a father. I have a savior. I have a Lord, and I don't mess with him by playing with things that make his sacrifice look small. I tremble at every prospect of bringing reproach upon my God. So, last word, L live in hope, hopefully. Live in holiness in all your conduct. Live in holy fear of bringing any reproach upon the one who ransomed you with infinite price. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for children desiring God. I thank you for the curriculum. I thank you for the philosophy of ministry. And I thank you for the inspiration that we really can help our little ones grasp big truths. Would you help us grasp them? Would you help everyone in this conference now as Bruce and Jason and all the seminar leaders unpack implications of having such a holy God would you help all these precious leaders of children's ministries and churches go deep with you so that there overflows out of them for the children, for the youth, truths that are glorious and life-changing. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.